The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. We are going to be considering someone named Melchizedek, as Austin, Pastor Austin's already mentioned. And as we turn there and consider this Melchizedek character, I just want us to reflect on the fact that some of the most satisfying interesting and inspiring stories in history are often about small, seemingly insignificant people or events who have, or actions that have a disproportionate influence and significance. And uh, regarding seemingly unimportant people, you can't help but think of someone who was literally nicknamed Mr. Irrelevant. I mean, there's just no other person that you could locate to illustrate this point uh, the, the word, or the title, as it were, the honor of Mr. Irrelevant goes to the person who's always picked last in the NFL draft in, in 2022. That honor went to Brock Purdy. He was chosen last, dead last, in the 2022 draft, and he was selected by the San Francisco 49ers, as I'm sure many of you know. And so he was able to bear that honor of Mr. Irrelevant going into the season. Well, it just so turns out that the two he was came on as a third string quarterback and it just so turns out that Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo the first two quarterbacks they both got injured so Mr. Irrelevant well his relevance started to increase didn't it and he came in to lead the team and in fact he led so well that he led them to six straight wins and a spot in the playoffs eventually taking the Niners to the uh, National Conference Championship so Mr. Irrelevant became quite relevant and quite significant going from someone who seemed, was seemingly insignificant to someone who was very significant. And while we're on the uh, topic of Bay Area sports, and because I use them about every fifth sermon, let's talk about Steph Curry. Um, Steph Curry, at the time that he was drafted, many of you may not know this, at the time that he was drafted, he actually received uh, several negative scouting reports. And one of them goes like this. This is the actual scouting report that was, was, was uh, given uh, during the time that Steph was being ready to be drafted. This is the scouts are out there looking for good players, and, and this was his scouting report. It wasn't a very glowing report. It went like this: said, "Quote: Stephen's explosiveness. Sorry, it's not talking about someone else. Stephen's explosiveness and athleticism are below standard. He is not a great finisher around the basket. He needs to considerably improve as a ball handler. Stephen must develop as a point guard in order to make it in the league. He will have limited success at the next level." Do not rely on him to run your team. Isn't that good? (laughs) This seemingly insignificant small point guard ended up having a disproportionate influence on the NBA, changing what some have said, changing the game of basketball forever and becoming one of the greatest point guards, if not the greatest point guard and shooter of all time. And of course, you cannot forget, so if you're not into sports, you can't forget J.R.L. Tolkien's uh, beloved hobbits, right? The small, seemingly insignificant little folk just minding their own business, tending their gardens in the Shire, eventually would overturn the evil Lord Sauron and save the world. Well, that last one isn't historical, of course, or maybe it is. I don't know. But, it's, but anyways, the, the point in all those illustrations, just to, to indicate that within stories, within history, it's, it's often you find some, those who are seemingly insignificant without much of a role, who actually end up having a disproportionate significance and importance and influence 
in their life and what they accomplished. And here we have today a seemingly insignificant character in redemptive history named Melchizedek. And he will actually end up having an earth-shaping significance in redemptive history, despite the fact that he is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. And the first time he's mentioned at any length, he only gets two verses, and we barely get much information about him at all, yet he's going to have a significant, even earth-shaping significance in redemptive history, as we'll see. Last week, we're in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, and there we learned that God had sealed his promise of salvation with an oath. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to seal his promises. His promises are as good as gold. His promises are better than gold. He, He is always truthful. He never tells a lie. If God says it, it will happen. But for our sake and for our assurance, he seals his salvation with an oath. And he sealed that promise of salvation to Abraham. And of course, we are in Abraham as those who are in his final offspring, Jesus. And as we'll see later explicitly, uh, uh, the author who writes this psalm, Psalm 110, says this, The Lord has sworn, there it is with an oath, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, referring to the Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David writes that in Psalm 110. God seals his promise with an oath with Abraham. He seals his promise with an oath with Melchizedek, basically overlaying the entire structure of salvation with a promise-sealed oath so that you, as a believer, have utter assurance that God will do what he has promised to do. The permanence of our access to God through our great high priest is tied to this person of Melchizedek. That's how the author of Hebrews ended chapter 6. He said, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner, referring to going into God's presence, he's gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So though you may not have even heard of Melchizedek before we started talking about the book of Hebrews and studying the book of Hebrews, nevertheless, The author is going to argue in the next few verses that the permanence of our access to God's very throne room and the permanence of our salvation is actually tied to this Old Testament person that you hear barely anything about, named Melchizedek. But I want us to ask this question. I want us to grasp the author's general argument. We need to ask this question in order to do so. Let's ask, why does the author include a long argument about Jesus is Melchizedekian priesthood. Why would he do that? Couldn't he just mention him in a a few words? He's actually going to make this quite a sustained argument. And you're kind of scratching your head thinking, does does this person who's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament and just two verses in Genesis 14 is even worthy of all this text in the book of Hebrews? And indeed he is. But we have to ask this question, why would the author of Hebrews include this text, include this passage, include this discussion of Melchizedek in his letter to the Hebrews. And there are two interrelated answers to that question as to why he did it. Remember, the author of Hebrews is laboring from the very first verse to demonstrate that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And the reason he has to do this is because he has a group of Jewish believers who are being tempted to depart from the old covenant or depart from the new covenant in back into the old covenant from which they came. See, there are Jews, and they had once lived under the Old Covenant, but they now came to see Christ as the fulfillment of that Old Covenant, and they embraced Christ for salvation. But there are some other teachers coming along and saying, no, 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 in order to really please God, you need to kind of ease back into the Old 
and covenant. And they're being tempted to move back in that direction. So the author of Hebrews has to argue strenuously, thoroughly, carefully that the new covenant is infinitely superior to the old covenant. And he starts with Jesus to demonstrate that the mediator of the new covenant is superior to all the other Old Testament leaders. Moses, Joshua, David, and so on. So he's arguing in this way to demonstrate that the the old covenant is passed on and is now fulfilled by and, and inferior to that new covenant. He also has to, has to, and this is the second interrelated point, he also has to show that the old covenant has a built-in deficiency. The old covenant documents themselves actually teach, this is going to be the author's point here in chapter 7, The Old Covenant documents themselves actually teach us that they are meant to be temporary. The Old old Covenant documents through which God describes and delivers that Old Covenant, that whole sacrificial system and and all all this way of relating to God, the Old Covenant texts themselves tell us that that was always meant to be temporary. And that's an important point, right? Because if you're a Jewish believer who's tempted to go back to the Old Covenant to hear that the Old Covenant itself is teaching you that it's only temporary, then there is no reason whatsoever to go back to the Old Covenant. So that is why he is placing this argument, this sustained argument about Melchizedek in chapter 7. It's vital. It's crucial. This is not for upper-level Christians to, to get hold of. This is for every Christian to get a hold of, to understand why it is that our access to God is permanent and why it is that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. How do we know that the old covenant itself declares its own insufficiency? Well, let's find out. Before we launch into Melchizedek, we actually have to go back to Genesis 14 and get the background here. Let's turn back there to Genesis 14. Prior to Genesis 14, what you have are, you have Abraham and Lot, and and they're living in proximity to one another. And sometimes as it goes with relatives who live in proximity together, things aren't going as happily as they could be, and so they decide to split up, and Abram sends Lot in one direction, and Abraham selects another area. Verse 14 of chapter 13, lift up, uh, Lot, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had to separate it from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place from where you are, northward, eastward, southward, and westward, for all that the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever, and I will make your offspring as dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring shall also be counted. So God sends Abram in one direction, Lot gets sent in another direction. Now they are in separate locations to live. And there will be peace, but also God now fulfilling his promise of land to Abraham. So they split up. Lot went to the Jordan, uh, Jordan Valley. Abraham went to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And the Jordan of Valley, however, is the place where Sodom and Gomorrah were located, if those names sound familiar to you. After Abraham and Lot split up, there is a battle among several kings in this area. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are involved in this battle. And they leave their cities, in in the face of this battle, they leave their cities, the the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they leave the the cities that they've abandoned, they've left them vulnerable to being plundered. And that's exactly what happens. You can look down here in verse 11, now we're in chapter 14. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah 
and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and he went and went their way. So this is the picture. Sodom, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they leave their posts, like cowardly kings, you might say. Lot's left there. The city is left vulnerable to plunder. It gets plundered by these other kings who are doing battle against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot gets taken in the plunder. Okay? That's what's happening. Well, that's not a good situation because Abraham's going to find out about it. Uh, someone apparently escapes from this plunder and is able to get to Abraham knowing that he was related to Lot and tell him what has just happened. Verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And this is a rather remarkable bit of military activity on Abram's part, or Abraham's part. He has these 318 trained servants. These would have been servants within his household that were specifically trained for his protection. And the, the idea here is they would have been trained for his protection because Abraham at this point is quite wealthy. And so he needs a way of protecting himself from marauders, right? He doesn't want to get attacked and have all of his, his possessions plundered. And so he has these military trained men in his household. 318 of them, and that's that speci- very specific number should actually increase your confidence in the historicity of this text because that's a, a highly detailed way to write. It's being very specific. It wasn't 320, it wasn't 317. It's 318 of these trained men born in his Abraham's house. Well, you might wonder, how could a, a group this size overtake uh, these, this, other, this national military? Well, you have to note that God had already promised to bless those who blessed Abraham and to curse those who cursed Abraham. And it's quite possible that this attack on Lot was an indirect attack on Abraham. So that's quite possible. But you also have to note that Abraham uses some pretty sly military tactics here, doesn't he? He divides his forces so they can go on different sides and flank them, right? But he also attacks by night when they're unaware and maybe there are less less people posted on uh, guard. And so he uses some sly military tactics. Ultimately, when Melchizedek comes out and congratulates uh, Abraham, he's actually going to attribute the victory to God. So it is likely that God here is blessing Abraham in this military victory because he had promised to do so in an earlier promise. Well, after this victory and after he rescues his nephew Lot, you have this other king come out along with the king of Sodom. And they go out to meet Abram in the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. Okay, And they likely are coming out to say, hey, thank you, right? Especially the, the king of Sodom. Hey, thank you for uh, taking out these dudes who attacked my city. Well, you also have another king come along, and his name is Melchizedek. It says in verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. This is likely to 
serve the, the soldiers who were weary. It's probably also to congratulate Abraham on his victory. He, he had a great military victory. So Melchizedek is going to bring out bread and wine to celebrate, but also to bring some sustenance and some refreshment to these soldiers that Abraham had used to rescue Lot. And it says here, and it might be in a parenthesis in your text, it is in mine in the ESV, it says, he was a priest of God Most High. And you might be wondering, how was he a priest of God Most High? I thought God revealed himself to Abraham. How did he, how is this the case that this is a priest of God Most High? Well, this is not unprecedented in, in Scripture. If you know your biblical chronology, Job likely existed prior to, lived prior to, or at least a contemporary a little earlier to Abraham. And here you have Job, we have no mention of how he came to know the one true God, yet he did. So either he had had heard an oral tradition handed down from uh, Adam, or he had God revealed himself to him personally, we don't know. Same kind of thing here with Melchizedek. God could have revealed himself personally to Melchizedek and revealed to him his ways and, and made him a priest. And in any way, in any case, he is the priest of God most high. And so this isn't unusual, this shouldn't cause us consternation. This is something that you see in Job, and it's the case here. God has revealed himself to someone outside of Abraham's line. Well, he comes out, as we've already said, offering bread and wine. It says that he blessed Abraham this way. It says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. Okay? That is all that we've got on Melchizedek. You can go ahead and get in your concordance, whatever you want to do. That's all you're going to find in the Old Testament. He's got two verses, and we're not given a whole lot. However, when you turn to Psalm 110, just imagine yourself, you're, you're a Jew, you know this story. You turn to Psalm 110, and it says that there is a priest coming, that there, the Messiah is going to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And you would think, hey, I've heard Melchizedek, I've heard that before. Let's go find out who this Melchizedek is. And you go back and you're, you're greatly disappointed because he's only got two verses. Okay? That's what's going on here. We have Melchizedek mentioned in Genesis 14 and you have him mentioned in uh, Psalm 110 and that is it for the Old Testament. Well, let's go back now to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. We've got a little bit of that background. We, we are introduced to Melchizedek in his Old Testament context. Let's see now how the author of Hebrews is going to interpret that bit of biblical history, that historical narrative. On your outline, you can see it. First point here is Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. First three verses, verses 1 through 3. We want to know, right, we, we, we've seen Melchizedek in Genesis 14, we've seen him mention just a word in Psalm 110, we want to know who is this Melchizedek and why does it matter, okay? That's what the author is going to explain to us now. He says this, he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. That's pretty straightforward. All he's doing there in those first two verses, he's just reiterating all that we just read. He just This is a summary of Genesis 14 and Melchizedek. That's straightforward. But then, 
later in verse 2, he starts to interpret the significance of the details of the story, right? He summarizes it. Now he's going to discuss the details. He says, he is, that's Melchizedek, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. The word Melchizedek literally means righteous king or king of righteousness. So he's noting significance there. He ruled Salem. He, ru- he likely, as its text says here, he, like, he ruled Salem well. He was a good king. He was a righteous king. But he is also king of peace, which probably explains why he wasn't out there in the battle with all these other kings. He was the, a peaceful king. The word Salem in Hebrew means peace. And the word Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So he is both king of peace and king of righteousness. As a king of Salem, he is king of peace, and his, his name means he is king of righteousness. So the point here is that when you're reading through the biblical narrative, when you come to a character, it doesn't matter if he gets one verse or 20 verses, when you get to a biblical character whose name means righteous king, who is the king of peace because he's the king of Salem, you should start to perk up and take notice. Okay? We want to pay close attention. But there's more because he's going to go on to say some things that are challenging. So we have to figure out how is it that he is reading Genesis 14. He goes on to say, so we've all he's done is he's translated his name, say that's significant, and he said he's the king of Salem, that's significant, he's the king of peace, but also, verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Say what? Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What is he talking about here? Well, some, and maybe some here today, some have taken this to mean that Melchizedek is simply a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It's just the Son of God showing up in redemptive history before he shows up later in redemptive history. He shows up early here in Genesis 14. He's called Melchizedek, of course, because he's the true king of righteousness, the true king of peace. And he doesn't have genealogy or mother or father because the Son of God has no beginning or end. He has, he's eternal. And therefore, when you read Genesis 14, you should just recognize this as, a, as the Son of God coming before he actually came. He, he manifests himself in this way before his incarnation as Jesus, the, the Son of Mary. I don't take that position for a few reasons. First is he says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Okay, So that's an important piece. He resembles the Son of God, not that he is. But another uh, important piece is, is he's reading significance in the way that the passage itself has been written. In other words, the author of Hebrews is noting that in the account itself, there's no mention of Melchizedek's father or mother. There's no mention of his genealogy. There's no mention of his birth or his death. There's no mention in the story uh, to the end of his priesthood. There's no mention of those things. The story is very short, and it only includes Melchizedek's name, that he was a king of Salem, that he was a priest of the Most High God, that he brought out bread and wine, and that he blessed Abraham and received tithes. That's it. There's no mention of genealogy. We'll see why that's significant in a moment. There's no mention of mother and father, and there's no mention of his of him dying. So within the text itself, you have someone who is not the Son of God, but who resembles the Son of God, and that's his point. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest forever. 
just like Jesus, whose priesthood never ends, this Melchizedek, no mention of his death. So in the text itself, it appears as though he does not die. But he notes that he doesn't have a genealogy because you needed a genealogy in order to serve as a priest under the Old Covenant system. You needed to demonstrate that you were actually a priest or an actual uh, Levite descendant. You could not be a priest unless you descended from the tribe of Levi. So this is significant here. He's saying that this priest here, this Melchizedek, he's different from the Levitical priest because he doesn't have a genealogy that makes him Levitical. In fact, as we'll see, the Levites haven't even been born yet, and that's significant. But that's one of the reasons why he's saying he doesn't have a genealogy in the, the, the text here, because he's, he's designating this Melchizedek as a special priest, different from the Levitical priests. In fact, this kind of thing where you needed to prove your priesthood, your lineage from the tribe of Levi actually happened in Nehemiah. Ezra wouldn't learn, allow certain priest, uh, people to serve because they couldn't prove their lineage. They, he would, uh, wouldn't allow them to serve in the, at the altar because they couldn't prove their lineage. So what's going on here? What is the, the author of Hebrews doing? I believe what he's doing is he's, he's taking Psalm 110, which says that the Messiah, the coming king, will be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He is then locating Melchizedek in redemptive history in Genesis 14. And he is, he is seeing that God has taken providentially taken the, the events of history to bring it about that, that Abraham, after a victory, would encounter this true and real and genuine king-priest of Salem who bore the name Melchizedek, who was a king of righteousness, a genuine, real king. Abraham will meet him, he will be blessed by him, and he will offer him, offer him tithes, and that is going to help explain exactly what it means that the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is seeing God orchestrating the events of history such that you will have significance in this character of Melchizedek that will explain to us what Psalm 110 means. And so that is what the author of Hebrews now is doing. He's saying, this is what it all means. This is how it all fits together. This is why a seemingly insignificant person who only gets two verses in the Old Testament is actually highly significant. He will demonstrate the temporary nature of the Levitical priesthood in a powerful way. Okay? Are you with me? I know this is, this is heavy stuff, but it, it, it's crucial, and I think it's ultimately beneficial for our faith. Let's look at the next point. This is verses 4 through 10. This is now Melchizedek greater than Abraham and Levi. Melchizedek greater than Abraham and Levi. Let that ring in your head for a moment. It should be ringing. I just said Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Yeah, I said it. Well, that's because the author is, of Hebrews is going to say it. This is, this is amazing. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, namely Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed them who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. See, he said it. Verse 8, 
In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself received tithes, paid, uh, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What is going on here? Well, he's making astounding observations in this short little text in Genesis. He first observes a very important point. He observes that Melchizedek must be a very important person for Abraham to give him a tenth of everything that he won from the enemy's kings. At a very bare reading, Abraham comes along and Melchizedek, and he's just had serious victory over these kings. He's demonstrated his military might. He's wealthy. He's powerful. And then this king Melchizedek, who's Melchizedek, by the way, he just waltzes out here, and, and Abraham lays before him a tenth of everything that he has just won in attacking this king and rescuing his nephew Lot. So the author is saying, hey, you should notice, it's pretty clear to anybody, anybody paying attention that this Melchizedek, he's a pretty important person. Just a bare reading of it like that. We also have to ask the question, and this is what he's going he's to start pressing now in his argument. We also have to ask the question, who else receives tithes in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant? Well, that's right, it's the Levitical priests who do. Remember, the Levitical priests didn't get a land allotment. They didn't get a land inheritance that they could cultivate and earn their living and make their living and, and serve to... to produce their sustenance, they relied upon tithes of the other tribes who had land to take a tenth of what they were able to cultivate and then give it to the Levitical priests. And that was the Levitical priests living. That's how they, they lived, is they received a tithe from their brothers. Okay, So we have here in chapter 14 of Genesis the, the giving of tithes, and that should make you perk up and think, hey, I know about tithes, and I know that tithes are given to the Levitical priests, and that's how they made their living. And this was a law given directly in the Old Covenant itself. Numbers 18, verses 21 and following says this, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for their foreign inheritance, in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. God told his people, you will give to me, and I will give to his, my servants, the Levites, a tent so that they have a living so that they can serve me at the altar. Okay? That passage I just read was God's commandment for Israel to pay a tithe to support the Levitical priesthood and for the Levites to receive that tithe. All the people had, of Israel had to do it. Yet these people that they were receiving tithes from were their brothers. and Nevertheless, God commanded... The, all the people of Israel to give the Levites this tithe. And why is this significant? Why is this significant? The, the author of Hebrews, he, this, there's a serious redemptive historical uh, implication here. This is really serious. This is almost seismic, you could say. This is significant because even before the Levitical priesthood is established, we find a priest in Genesis 14 receiving tithes. Okay? Before... 
God establishes the old covenant sacrificial system where the Levitical priest would serve and receive a tithe from the people long before that, 400 years before that, we have a priest here receiving tithes. That's huge. That's a big deal. This meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek occurred some 400 years before God had delivered Israel out of Egypt and established that sacrificial system. And in Genesis 14, you have someone who's not even in the line of Abraham receiving tithes from Abraham. He's not part of Abraham's line. He's not part of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant doesn't even exist. And here you have a priest receiving tithes. Verse 6. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Why is it such a big deal? that he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him? This is why, verse 7, and it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham and then blessed Abraham. You know what he demonstrated by doing that? He's greater than Abraham. (laughs) I mean, if it's not in the Bible, you wouldn't believe it because you're like, no, 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 Derek. You must be wrong. Abraham had the promises. That can't be the case. Abraham has the redemptive promises. God had made the promises to Abraham for, for all the, the earth's blessing. You can't mean to say that two verses tucked away in Genesis 14 indicate that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And I would say, well, I didn't say it. The author of Hebrews did. In fact, so clear should it be, he said it's beyond dispute. <laughs> so it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In this case, Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Wow! Abraham's the progenitor of the Jewish people, and he's the one to whom the promises of the world's redemption were made. That event in and of itself should make careful Bible readers wake up and go, hold on, something's going on here, right? At the very least, I hope what this chapter on Melchizedek is doing for us is helping us read the Bible very carefully to notice all the details? Well, he goes on to say, so you think it stops there. It doesn't stop there. He just called Melchizedek greater than Abraham, believe it or not. And he's going on to say more than that. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one by of whom it is testified that he lives. What is he talking about here? Well, he's referring to mortal men, namely the Levitical priesthood, the Levite priests. They were mortal in that they died. They would eventually die, right? If you're mortal, you die. So you would serve for a few years, you would retire, and eventually you would die. Your priesthood, at least as it depended on you, couldn't be perpetual because you died. And then the the priest after you died and everybody's dying. Remember what I said, though, that he's noticing that within the text of Genesis 14 itself, the text itself is indicating or teaching that in terms of Melchizedek's resembling the Son of God, he doesn't have an end, right? There's no mention of Melchizedek's death in the passage. Now, I believe he's a real person, and he eventually did end up dying. But in the text itself, in the story itself, there's no mention of his death. And the author of Hebrews sees that as significant. And he's saying that in in this way, this is one of the ways that the Son of God resembles Melchizedek. In the story, there's no mention of his death. And in, with our Melchizedekian priest, namely Jesus, he doesn't die. 
but everybody in the Levitical priesthood does. So the point is that you have in the, the Melchizedekian priesthood, you have a greater priest because this priest never dies. So that's the point that he is trying to make. But just as important as that point is, is the next point. Watch what he says. One might say that even Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is, this is massive. What is the author of Hebrews saying now? Think of it. Who, where, where did Levi come from? Well, he came from Jacob. Who did Jacob come from? Well, he came from Isaac. Who did Isaac come from? He came from Abraham. Levi's not born yet. He's got a long ways coming. He's not even around yet. But he is Abraham's, uh, he, will, he will come from Abraham. He'll come from Abraham's line. And as the author says here, he's still in the loins of his ancestor, right? He's, Abraham still has to have Isaac, and then Isaac has to have Jacob, and Jacob has to have Levi. So in that sense, Levi is still in the loins of his ancestor, Abraham. And the reason why that's significant is because Abraham, who will give birth to the Levitical priesthood, is about to pay tithes to Melchizedek. So guess who's paying tithes to Melchizedek? Yeah, you guessed it. Levi is. The Levitical priesthood is bowing the knee to the Melchizedekian priesthood in this very small, short passage. Is that, is that wild or what? I mean, that, that is exciting stuff, okay? Biblical theology like this, that's really exciting because he's going to go on to argue that what's going on there is you can see within the Old Covenant itself, even before the, the Old Covenant system is even established, you can see in these, the, the Old Covenant documents, namely in Genesis 14, that we are planning for a covenant that is going to last only a temporary time. And it all starts in Genesis 14. So in that sense, you have the Levitical priesthood bowing the knee to the Melchizedekian priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood hasn't even been established yet. Why? Because the Levites are paying tithes through Abraham to this Melchizedekian priest. There's another priesthood. That, so what this is teaching then is that there's another priesthood that is better than the Levitical priesthood. Again, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning if we know the history of Israel. Namely, what's, what's the priesthood that's better than the Levitical priesthood? It's the Melchizedekian priesthood. So even centuries before the Old Covenant was established, you have, in the biblical narrative, it's already telling you that that Old Covenant that's coming, it's, it's already temporary, it's already inferior. So when Moses comes along and establishes, you know, several hundred years later, when Moses comes and establishes the sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood and all the details and all that stuff, guess what? There's already a priesthood that's been established that's superior to that one, which means that if you are a Jew who hasn't come to the new covenant, if you haven't come to that superior priesthood, you're clinging to something that's totally worthless. You're clinging to something that, that can give you nothing because it was always meant to be temporary. Well, let's look on now to verses 11 through 14. This is now Melchizedek, a superior priesthood. Melchizedek, a superior priesthood. He's gonna, the author's going to continue his argument of the Old Covenant's inferiority in verse 11 here. And he's taking us back implicitly to Psalm 110. 
Because remember, he's, he's reading Psalm 110, and Psalm 110 simply says that the coming Messiah will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he's got to scour the scriptures to find out, is there anything else about Melchizedek that I should know about? And that's where he goes, he goes to Genesis 14. But now he's going to go on to say a few more things, implying his, his reliance upon Psalm 110 here. He says this, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under the, it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one who is named after the order of Aaron? And the reason he says Aaron here, and the reason why he uses Aaron and the Levites interchangeably is because the high priest would come out of Aaron's line. Aaron is, comes out of the Levitical line, so Aaron is Levitic in that sense, but only the high priest could come out of Aaron's line. Not all the Levites could be a high priest, only the ones in the Arianic line. So that's why he's using Aaron and Levi interchangeably here. But his point is simply to say that, listen, if you're reading the Old Testament, if you're reading the Psalms, for example, and you come to Psalm 110, and you know about the old covenant system. You know about the sacrificial system. You, you've lived in it. You're a Jew. And you're reading, and it says that the Messiah is going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You'd be like, wait, 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 wait. Why do we need another priest? We got our priesthood. We got the Levite priesthood. We got the high priest. It's all squared away. The author's point is like, no, you, sh you should recognize that as soon as Psalm 110 mentions that, it's saying that there is an insignificance and an, a lack of, or a deficiency rather, there's a deficiency in that old covenant system. Otherwise, why do you need a new priest? That's his point. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, why Psalm 110 mentioning another priesthood? Why would the coming Messiah not just be a Levit Levitical priest? Why could, or an Arianic priest, high priest? Why would not just do that? So Psalm 10 is actually telling you that the Le Levitical priesthood couldn't bring about the perfection that is needed. What perfection is he talking about? Well, just staying within the context of Hebrews itself, he's probably referring to the perfection of total and final forgiveness of sins, that final sacrifice. The Levitical priesthood couldn't do that. You're just doing it over and over and over and kill an animal after animal and after animal and the, the priest would live and then they would die and then the priest would come after them and they're slaughtering animals all the time and there's no end to it. So you can never have a final, complete forgiveness of sin. So he's likely talking about that perfection. But he also talks about later uh, uh, the saints being made perfect in glory because of that final sacrifice. So he probably has an, uh, an end times perfection in mind where we will all be perfected in glory, but that can only happen if you have a final sacrifice and all your sins can be forgiven. He's probably talking about the blessings that come from that sacrifice, namely a heavenly city. He'll talk about in Hebrews chapter 11 and so on. The blessings of a perfect priest king who can usher in God's kingdom. The point is that the Levitical priesthood couldn't supply any of that. There's no perfection in the Levitical priesthood, as good as it was. Now, all this bashing away on the Levitical priesthood, you might be thinking, well, wait a second, that's not very nice. God did establish it. It was a gracious gift to Israel so they could fellowship with God. So we're not taking away from that. We're just pointing out that it was always meant to be temporary. And in and of itself, it is inherently clear that it is actually meant to be temporary. But he goes on to say in verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Why would he say something like this? Because the law and the priesthood are so closely knit together that you can't separate one from the other. You come to Psalm 110 
and you change priesthood, you change the entire law. The entire law must be changed. There is a, a wholesale shift. This is what I meant earlier by saying this is seismic. There's a wholesale shift now in the way we are to approach and understand the law. Why? Because there's a new priesthood. You can't separate law from priesthood. So once a new priest comes along, Psalm 110, you should be thinking, a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek? Whoa! New priest, new law. That's what, that's what you should be reading. That's what this, the author of Hebrews is, is saying as we read through that, those old covenant documents. The priesthood and therefore the sacrificial system and therefore how one gains access to God has changed. Here's the, here's the important point. The old covenant is obsolete. It's obsolete. It's useless. Okay? Now, you can understand why this would be vital for a, a group of believers who are Jewish in their background who are being tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. The author of Hebrews has just destroyed the Old Covenant and its significance, right? in terms of its contemporary significance. Of course, it was valuable to Israel back then, but now that the, the, the new priest king has come along, it's not valuable at all. In fact, to even begin thinking about going back to it will endanger your eternal salvation. Okay, That's one of the things he's been going on about in earlier chapters. So let's sum up his argument. What he's saying here, actually before we do that, let's actually finish this uh, passage here. He says, For the one of whom these things are spoken, namely Jesus, he belonged to another tribe from which no one ever served the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. What is, he, what is he saying here? Well, the, the simple point is that Jesus did not come out of the, the Levite tribe. If you were going to be a king, you had to come out of, the, or be a priest, you had to come out of the Levitical tribe. Well, this priest didn't. He's not part of the Levitical tribe. He came out of Judah. So we have a, a wholesale change in the priesthood. Therefore, we have a wholesale change in the law. Even our priest did not come out of the Levitical line. He came out of Judah. So here's, let's just sum things up. When you come to Psalm 110 and you learn of a new priesthood in the order of Melchizedek and not the Levitical line, you should make, that should make you hearken back to Genesis 14 to learn as much as you can about Melchizedek. There, in Genesis 14, like the author of Hebrews did, you will learn that the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And... Other important things that you would hope are in your notes. Um, hmm. Ah, ah, yes. Have no fear. Uh, you will. So let's just back up here. Let's just let's just get the full force of this uh, this argument here. Okay. When you come to Psalm one ten, what you should be recognizing, and it, it, you read of uh, of this Messiah who's going to be a priest according to the. Order of Melchizedek. And that should cause you to hearken back to Genesis 14 to learn as much as you can about this Melchizedek. And there you would learn that the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood because long before Levi even became along, you have, even before he came along and the, the sacrificial system was established, you have a priest who's not in that line who actually receives tithes from that line and blesses that line, demonstrating that he is superior over that line. We are to conclude, therefore, 
that this new priesthood inaugurates a wholesale change in the law and renders the old covenant law with its Levitical priesthood obsolete. Jesus doesn't descend from Levi. He descends from Judah. Just like it was prophesied in Genesis, and Jesus takes his high priestly role in the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. So the big takeaway for that congregation would have been, there is no reason in the universe why you should even ponder going back to the Old Covenant. It's just, have I made it clear now, right? They should be, they should be yes, we, we believe you, and we will never go back, okay? But it's also to benefit us, I think, as well. If you think about the religions of the world, just for a moment, there, there's a multitude of religions in the world, a few major ones, and then you have fractions and sects of various different religions. So there's just countless religions in the world, right? And we, in God's revelation, we know that God delivered his true religion to Israel, didn't he? He came to Israel and he revealed himself. He says, this is how true worship will go. We're going to have a priesthood, we're going to have sacrifices, we're going to have a tabernacle, we're going to have a temple, and this is exactly how it will go. I'm not revealing myself like this to anyone else, no other nation. This is how it's going to go. Okay? And then he goes on later to tell us that that was a mere picture of a much greater reality coming, namely my son, the Lord Jesus. All of this will be fulfilled in him. All of this significance will be found, find its significance here in Christ. And so the author of Hebrews is arguing that old covenant is obsolete. Pay no more attention to it in terms of how to access God. If it's the case that the God of the universe who reveals true religion to Israel comes along and says, that is, if you're reading carefully, that's fulfilled in my son, how could you ever dream of thinking that you would find true religion anywhere else? The God of the universe gave true religion to Israel and has said, that was temporary. It all pointed to this, Jesus Christ. So how could you imagine going anywhere else are you going to find atonement? Where else are you going to find satisfaction for sins? Where else are you going to find full, complete forgiveness of all of your sins? Where are you going to find it? You can't find it anywhere except in Jesus. So I think there's application there for us as well. It's for us to rejoice in the one true faith that God has delivered his people. The permanence of it, the sufficiency of it, the certainty of it. But there's another um, application that I want to make. And I probably could have started making this application at the very beginning of our study, but I think now's an appropriate place. Remember, our faith comes out of Israel. Your Messiah is Jewish. He's a Jew. God chose the people of Israel to be his servant to the nations. God gave Israel his law. He gave them the promises. He gave them the Messiah. You're a Christian today because God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to bring his Messiah into this world. So then, I believe there should be an immediate affection in the heart of every believer for the nation of Israel and for the Jews. I I don't know how you can escape it, especially with passages like this. Listen to this passage from Romans 11. This is Paul now, describing us in, in relation to the Jews. It says this, 
But if some of the branches were broken off, he's referring to the, the Jews now, who are, who are presently unbelieving, and on a large scale, Jews are not believing in their Messiah. Some are, but not many are not. Okay? If some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, remember, you're a Gentile, not a Jew, you have to be grafted in okay, to the Jewish religion, the Jewish Messiah, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Where did Jesus come from? Israel. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Our faith is rooted in Israel. Our faith is rooted in the the religion that God revealed to Israel. Our faith is a Jewish faith, you might say. It is the fulfillment of it. It's the perfect fulfillment of what God had revealed to Israel. And so the author of Hebrews is now making this argument in chapter 7 that if you are a Jew who is tempted to go back to that old covenant religion, remember that Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. And that was the preparation even all the way back from Genesis 14. Christ is the fulfillment. And so what you have in the book of Hebrews, I believe, is a manual for Jewish evangelism. There should be an affection in our hearts for the Jews because our Messiah is Jewish, because our religion, our faith is rooted in God's revelation to his people, Israel. And what you have here is a treasure trove of truth to take to that Jewish person to say, guess what? I know what it all points to. I know where it's all going. In fact, you want to hear something wild? Let me tell you about Melchizedek and his significance. Now, I've had the privilege of talking to a few and evangelizing a few Jews in my life, and I find it an incredible privilege, given what we know about them and God's dealings with them and how we are the ones grafted in. and We're the wild olive branch. And that God is going to someday graft them back in to their Messiah. But I I think we should take this scripture and that reality more seriously and to see this as a a guide and a, a guidebook to evangelizing those who have rejected their Messiah. And I think that is a valid application to make from this text, but also from the whole book of Hebrews. I could have been I could have been making that argument from chapter one that we should have an affection for the Jews, that this is a guidebook. This book, the book of Hebrews, is a guidebook of Jewish evangelism. So at the very, very least, let us continue to pray for our Jewish neighbors, continue to pray that God would open the eyes of our Jewish neighbors to behold the greatness of their Melchizedekian priest king and to, to recognize that they are in need of God's grace. Of course, we want to pay attention to all those who are in need of the gospel, but I do believe an, an application of this book and of this passage is to consider those who are in need of their Melchizedekian priest and who have, currently are rejecting him. So next time we get together, we'll go a little deeper into this argument that the author is making for the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood. He'll bring us back to Psalm 110, And he'll start explaining to us in more detail what it means that this old covenant is obsolete. So until then, 
Keep seeking the Lord. Keep reading these tough passages. Keep trying to understand them clearly. And don't pass over passages and people in the Old Testament who seem to be insignificant. As we saw today, Melchizedek is far from insignificant. He actually teaches us how the Old Covenant is inferior to the New Covenant and how his priesthood and now Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Old Covenant priesthood. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what is a challenging concept but a rewarding one as we dig into it. We see that the early on in the, the biblical narrative that the Levitical priesthood is being declared as temporary and even inferior to another priesthood. What a treasure trove scripture is. We thank you uh, for this word. We do pray that we use it in all of our evangelism efforts. We pray that you would help us to keep in mind the, the Jew. And this is how this text is such an important guidebook to how to witness to those who have the promises yet who are rejecting their Melchizedekian priest. Help us to be tender-hearted. Help us to have insight into your word that we might share it accurately and effectively with others. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.